You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Beltway Beef podcast. This is Ashley, and today I'm joined by Ethan Lane. Ethan, this has been another exciting month in Washington. Can you just kind of give us a rundown of what has happened this past month? <laughs> well, let me get started. I mean, there's a lot happening in Washington. Um, you know, we are now firmly into the post 100 days uh, kind of meat of this administration's outlining of, of what they would like to see from Congress and, and, and the kind of the outlines of the plans they have for what's really shaping up to be kind of a, a, you know, a grand vision of reorganizing a lot of different pieces of American society. Um, they're not describing it that way. That's me describing it that way. But certainly it has that feel. Um, and, and, you know, coming off of the president's address to Congress last week, um, it's clear that they have a lot of ambitious goals that they want to achieve in the next four years. Um, and they view a, a very tight window of time, rightfully so, between now and the end of this 117th Congress to try to get some, some work done uh, on, on those issues. Uh, you know, what's interesting about that is um, as they're discussing all of these, these you know, pretty, pretty high-minded uh, ideas and uh, also very expensive ideas, whether it's you know free community college or um, a lot of the discussions about increasing different kinds of wages, um, all of the uh, ambitious climate goals, and and a lot of um, you know discussion about things like carbon banks and, and other ways to make sure that um, you know that we're we're reducing our carbon footprint and, and increasing sustainability across all of these different sectors. Um, we've had a lot of focus really start to concentrate down on how we pay for all of this. Um, you know here we sit. Uh, this time last year, we were just implementing the CARES Act. Um, that was the second of two coronavirus relief bills that totaled, you know, three trillion dollars. Um, we spent about five trillion by the time it was all said and done on coronavirus, over and above normal uh, federal expenditures last year. The president is proposing another five trillion, roughly, between his two bills, um, in additional spending beyond that. Um, you know, kind of uh, for the first of it framed as infrastructure, although there's some debate about how much of that bill is really infrastructure. Um, and, and, you know, then this this second American family plan, which they're they're heavily invested in selling to the American people and, and quite frankly, all of us in the stakeholder community in Washington as well. That is a tremendous amount of additional spending on top of extraordinary amounts of, of federal dollars going out the door. Um, you know, some of which, like CFAP, were badly needed in the country over the last year. So we're not debating that necessarily. Um, but the pay-fors for these things are going to become really important. Um, you know, that's where you get into kind of traditional block and tackle Washington politics. Uh, you know, this is a highly partisan environment with very tight majorities um, in the House and no majority. It's a 50-50 split with a tiebreaker, obviously, in the U.S. Senate. So to try to push these ambitious kinds of goals... Um, through a Congress that is so hopelessly deadlocked as this one is on so many different issues is, is about as aggressive a plan as I, I think I've seen in my time in Washington. Um, and, and so that's really, that is the story here in Washington at the, at the moment is, you know, how much of this is real? How much of this should we be laying awake at night concerned about? Um, you know, we have a lot of producers in the country that are uh, extremely worried about things like 30 by 30. Um, you know, what does that mean for, uh, for cattle producers? What does that mean for private property rights? Um, that's going to focus, that's going to play into this a lot as we see that kind of roll out over the next uh, week or two, you know, some more details of that. Um, so we're, we're really kind of playing seven-dimensional chess at the moment. Um, and, and it's kind of starting to boil down to, to, as I said earlier, the pay-fors, the taxation component. 
What does that mean for producers' bottom lines uh, in an environment where we know 40% of agricultural operations roughly are going to transition to the next generation in the next 15 years or so? Um, if you do away with stepped-up basis, if you roll back those estate tax levels that we achieved uh, in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, you know, the, the, the potential to, to really destroy the ability of producers to continue family farming operations to the next generation. And the administration has said they want to make sure that doesn't happen. They have been um, very outgoing with us. They've been very engaging. They've been calling us. We've been hearing from the White House. We've been hearing from USDA briefings and, and explanatories on their ideas for exempting um, you know, some gain from the agricultural community uh, as long as that land stays in production. And that is a good start. I don't want to diminish the fact that we appreciate that they're trying to get there. But the devil is always in the details. And I feel like we keep saying that over and over again, but it's true. Um, we, we, just, we just know too much about the complications that any family has when you're transitioning in a state from one, uh, from one generation to the next. Uh, multiple siblings, maybe some don't want to get in the business, others do. Maybe you don't have anybody to transition that to. Does that mean that you're penalized, even if you identify somebody to transition that operation to, to keep it in agriculture? And what about uh, you know uh, farms and ranches that are on the outskirts of expanding cities where property values are no longer three thousand dollars an acre, but they're six or nine or twelve thousand dollars an acre? Um, that basis starts to really matter um, for those families as far as the, the the wealth that they've built up over generations. So we're we're deep into that conversation at this point. Um, the administration is open to ideas, and that's what they've continued to reiterate to us. Um, and, and we are going to take them up on that at every opportunity. We're going to keep educating. We're going to keep pointing out some of those areas where we think there are some, some flaws in what they've laid out so far and, and kind of help, uh, help them to see our perspective on what we think they could do to fine tune this plan in a way that doesn't impact the very people they say they're trying to help because we want to help them do that if that's their goal. Right, and I think it's important that you know NCBA is engaging with the administration, but there's also a lot of engagement happening on the Hill with members of Congress as well. So can you talk about some of the things that the team here in DC has been doing just to be actively engaged in this messaging and this sharing uh, producer stories on the Hill? Well, yeah, I mean, whenever you're contemplating any of these, these big expansive programs, the best thing we can do is illustrate how it will impact your average American family that produces cattle in this country. And obviously we know that from coast to coast, those operations can look radically different from California to Alabama to Michigan, um, you know, to Texas and, and anywhere else in between. So getting those stories out, talking about families who have already experienced the, the, the dangers of, of, you know, a lack of estate tax planning or uh, the problems with transitioning between generations, explaining how easy it is to lose more of our agricultural footprint, which this administration is acknowledging is critical to their conservation goals. Working lands are the only way you get to any kind of substantive conservation goal in this country, and we are the tip of the spear for that. So the last thing they need is a shrinking agricultural footprint. Uh, we have economic headwinds that are that are uh, you know beyond what we've ever seen. Our producers around the country are hurting and have been for for quite some time. Layering in uh, just another complication on top of that in the form of uh, a threat to to the, the really the, the the main source of their uh, of their their family wealth. You know the land that these operations exist on by and large is the bank account. 
You know, we're a, we're a business that's inherently land rich and cash poor. Um, and that's a point we've made to Secretary Vilsack and his team multiple times. And uh, on a call with him yesterday, I was very pleased to hear him parrot that back. Um, that means that they're, they're getting it and they understand the challenges that we're wrestling with, but educating the Hill on that as well. Um, so that, you know, we don't get into this partisan, uh, you know, bunker mentality that we so often fall victim to in Washington, where you've got Republicans on one side saying, heck no, and you've got Democrats on the other side saying, we got to go faster and we got to get this done and there's no middle ground. Um, I think that's been one of the biggest uh, sort of positive uh, developments from this Congress is the, the, the resurgence of the blue dogs. Um, we have moderate Democrats in Washington again, um, and they, they have a voice, and, and, and they're concerned about their constituents. Um, we have been engaging aggressively with those members, and moderate Republicans as well, looking for that common ground, looking for ideas and concepts and, 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 and deals where both sides of the aisle can come together and get something done for the American people. And we think that's really going to be where, where the sausage is made in this, in this Congress. That's where we're putting a lot of our focus. We're working with committee chairmen on both sides of the aisle. Um, I don't remember a time since I've been here that we've had such an open and robust dialogue with both sides of the aisle and our key committees. You know, uh, whether it's the, the Agriculture Committee, Transportation, uh, you know, Financial Services, you name it, Ways and Means, we've got great dialogue going across the hill on all of these issues. And that is good news for cattle producers because, um, you know, we're not trying to get this done with one side of the equation. We've got friends everywhere and, and we're making sure that they understand just how important these issues are to us. Right. And we've said it time and time again on this podcast that NCBA is interested in working with people who are willing to fight for the cattle industry. And I think, you know, one of the most powerful tools that we have in lobbying here in D.C. is producer engagement. And so just want to plug that tax letter campaign again, because that's still going on. We still need folks to write to their members of Congress. Please, please, please share your story. Uh, it's incredibly important that you connect with your member of Congress. It's incredibly important that they know that these stories are happening in their backyards. I was up on the Hill this morning uh, having a conversation with the Chief of Staff uh, for, for a member of Congress and, and, and just talking him through the fact that, hey, I know producers in your district that are having these issues. Um, and that's, that's the way this, this thing is going to have to work. We have got to educate people. Um, so don't assume that you know, your neighbor three counties over or, or somebody in another state is going to do this work for you. Um, we, are, we are really good at producing the highest quality beef in the world. We as an industry are really bad at getting our voice on the record in Washington, D.C. So let's, let's, let's outperform expectations here. Let's get, some, let's get some stories on the record. Let's get our names on that list. And let's make sure that our voices are being heard in this conversation. Right. And so now transitioning, you know, from this conversation into another really big thing that happened this month, we saw a lot of media around uh, beef consumption and the amount of beef uh, folks can consume and, and relating that back to, you know, Biden's climate plan. And I think there was a lot of confusion around that, a lot of rhetoric around that. So can you just set the record straight <laughs> here for us, Ethan? So, I mean, there's about three or four different stories I could go to on this topic. It has been a... Uh, it's been a busy couple weeks on that front, and you know, obviously, the the, the Fox News, uh, the Fox News freakout, as we've been calling it around here, with that graphic that made its way around social media on the reduction in, in consumption. Uh, the White House, USDA were extremely clear on this front. There are no plans, no white papers, and I'm paraphrasing the Secretary of Agriculture here. No plans, no white papers, no studies. Um, you know, nothing that that is that is going through the discussion loop in this administration that involves reducing beef consumption. And, and we appreciate that they came out and affirmed that. 
We knew that already from our conversations with them, but sometimes media has a life of its own and kind of catches fire with something like this. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be vigilant. That doesn't mean that we don't have, at the same time that that's, that's happening, you know, Epicurious Magazine um, uh, making a completely fact-free decision to remove beef from their pages. Um, reading that, uh, it, it's like somebody Googled a story from 2009 and never followed up on it, and that's what the decision was based on. And that's extremely disappointing. Um, you know, coming from the food community, they should know better than that. And I think they're hearing that from chefs around the country um, and from sustainable agriculture folks and people that are that are trying to illustrate to them just how bad they missed the mark with this with this decision. And, and you know, at the same time that you're seeing that, you're seeing outlets like the New York Times that are finally starting to put forward some good information about just how important grazing is and just what an essential piece of the puzzle we are. Um, so it is really a push and pull between old information, bad ideas, um, people who are stuck in a you know kind of an old way of thinking, and 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 science and and the real understanding of what a powerful tool grazing is, what a powerful tool cattle production is for climate change and for solving the climate crisis. Um, so we're we're going to have a lot more work to do on that front because it's like kind of like whack-a-mole. You know, we 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 make some progress on one area, and then you get somebody who just has clearly been sleeping in a cave for the last decade over here, um, and both of those things can be happening at once. So uh, you're going to hear a lot more from us on this topic. We're not going to quit talking about it. We're going to keep educating and we're going to keep counterpunching when people get it wrong. It's it's the, it's the least we can do. Um, we're going to have to keep that message moving forward. And I know you guys on the comms team uh, spend uh, about 15 hours a day uh, in this corner of the office working on that. And, and uh, you're not going to be out of things to do anytime soon, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I don't think we will. I think we'll certainly stay busy. And I think one thing to note from what you just said is we are going to punch back. But the difference is, is we're going to punch back with sound science and facts in the positive story of the cattle industry based on science. Arguments are so much easier to win when you're right. And, and that is the benefit we have here is that we are right. You know, when you look at, at ranches that have been in production for four, five, six or seven generations, that land looks healthy and is thriving and there's, it's full of wildlife because of what we do, not in spite of it. Um, so it's going to be continually important to illustrate those stories. And you know, what's funny is, uh, you know, beyond just sort of, uh, 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 you know, a, a, cooking, a cookbook outlet completely missing the mark on doing this, uh, it's really gratifying to hear so much pushback on that. Um, that's not just coming from us, that's coming from everywhere else in the country, that's coming from folks on social media and elsewhere that aren't in the cattle business that are like, wait a minute, uh, you know, this is wrong. We know better than this. So uh, that's, that's good to hear. We know it's nice to know we have allies out there and that people love their beef as much as we, we've always understood that they do. Um, but boy, this is the time where they need to speak up and say it. Absolutely. And so just, you know, real quickly before we end today, you mentioned 30 by 30 earlier. Uh, probably going to be some new news coming down the pipeline within the next couple of days. Uh, but can you just kind of give us an update about where we stand with that right now and what NCBA is continuing to do? Yeah, uh, 30 by 30 has captured people's uh, attention, I think, more than anything else this administration has done. Um, and, and, you know, part of that is just that it was so vague, right? We're going to conserve 30% of the American landmass by 2030. Okay, well, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. You ask me what that means, and I would tell you that you're already there um, because you have all of this land that's in production agriculture, that's in grazing, that's conserved, right? It is, it is preserved from development. It is being managed responsibly. There is more going in and benefit than is being pulled out uh, of, of those landscapes. So 
we're hearing from the administration that they agree with us about that, that they think working lands are a critical component of that 30%. That's really, really, really important. Now, do I think that that means, as the former head of the executive director of the Public Lands Council, do I, do I think that that means that our grazing allotments in the West are safe from this? Absolutely not. There's gonna be a lot of, of dialogue that needs to be had on that front because you know, that's always the area where we see this stuff manifest first. It's the easiest point of entry for radical environmentalists or anti-grazing advocates or whoever else to reduce a grazing footprint is on those federal grazing allotments. We're gonna to have to fight hard to make sure that we preserve our producers' grazing rights in the West. And, and you know, something like 3030 um, just has the, has the ability so easily to, uh, you know, to, to turn into a, a, a real problem in that regard. You know, things like wildlife corridors, which, you know, we have a lot of producers that are very proud of their, of their game management on their ranches. We have a lot of producers that are also outfitters, you know, that, that, are, that are doing multiple things uh, to generate revenue. And, and, and so the, these are not, you know, competing uses. Um, we, we had this problem in the Trump administration, right? For all of the things that we agreed with the Trump administration on, we, we butted heads for years with them over these wildlife corridors. Um, that is certainly gonna come back up as another issue um, in this 30 by 30 conversation and something we're gonna have to be really careful with and something we're gonna have to engage really aggressively on. But I, I wanna make sure that our producers around the country don't get ahead of themselves. Um, we are not gonna like everything that comes out of this administration. We're not gonna like probably most of what comes out of this administration. But we need to make sure that we stay relevant and that we stay at the table and that we deal from facts. And, and right now, the fact is an executive order coming from the president does not give them the ability to take your land away. So let's, let's make sure that we're responding to what's really on the table. When the details come out in the next couple of days, you're going to hear us out publicly talking about what's good and what's not. And we will go from there based on the facts that are ahead of us and, and deal with them as they come and, and deal with the real issues that are, that are challenges um, as part of this proposal. Um, I, I do think that the administration genuinely wants to try to get it right. Um, you know, they're trying to placate people on their left flank too that don't even think we have the right to exist on these landscapes. And, and the Biden administration has been clear with us, they don't agree with that perspective. But it's a balancing act that, that's gonna take some, some, some real work from them. And we're gonna have to keep informing that. We've been aggressively in that process, telling them what we think conservation means, what we think should count in that bucket. We're gonna have to keep doing that moving forward over and over and over again to make sure they get it right. And if they don't, we'll be the loudest ones out there banging a drum and, and illustrating what they need to do differently. But um, I do think that they deserve some credit for trying to get this right in the formulation process, the information gathering process that they've been in now. That's not a popular opinion, I recognize that. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, as a guy who's been fighting these battles for years, here in Washington on behalf of cattle producers, credit where credit's due, we've not seen this from Democratic administrations in the past. They're, they're reaching out and trying to get some input from us on how to do this right. Whether they can do it or not, we will, we will see in the next few days. Well, it sounds like the theme of the month has just been continued conversations and helping people understand the cattle industry. And I think, you know, you make a great point. We're saying giving credit where credit's due and they're open to having those conversations and, and open to having us be at the table to, to share that story. So I think it's just important that, like you said, everybody just, um, you know, continue to share that positive story of cattle producers, but also the team here in DC just continue to work and continue to fight and, um, you know, have those conversations where they're needed. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ethan. I'm sure you will have an exciting month ahead with your team, uh, continuing with the tax issues and the climate issues, and we'll have you back next month to give us an update on those. 
Thanks, Ashley. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify at Beltway Beef, also on Twitter at Beltway Beef. We'll see you next time.